0: Live from the JL in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between you are listening to conversations with rabbi tetz and welcome back today's discussion is the second of three podcasts related to covid now last week we started talking about the vaccines which is the hot topic of today and i forgot to ask you the most basic of questions rabbi tetz have you been vaccinated
1: the answer is yes, and the reason is don't, don't ask me what I would have done had these not been the circumstances. I'm not sure I'd like to say in public, but as it happens, I had some strong, clear symptoms of COVID early on, so I regarded myself as probably immune. But then I had a lot of dealings with a particular individual who is vulnerable and shielding, and I thought it was wrong of me to put that person at risk without ensuring that I was immune. So I went for the vaccine, despite having had the uh, symptoms of the illness as well, I felt I had a clear obligation because of this personal relationship I had with this person. What I would have done had I not been in contact with anyone, being able to isolate, I probably would have said I'm too young.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You definitely look too young. So you felt you got the vaccine because of someone else. Is one, so to speak, allowed to, because there are risks of the vaccine and you didn't feel that you needed it. Can one put oneself at a at least small amount of risk in order to save someone else?
1: That's a wonderful subject. Indeed, indeed. And I think this is quite a common – Quite I have a friend who's a physician in uh, New Jersey, a young doctor, and he told me right at the beginning of the epidemic he was the first to get vaccinated in his area because he deals with vulnerable elderly people all the time. In fact, he has a large practice in nursing homes in the United States, and the danger to himself was completely irrelevant. He said he couldn't live with himself if he carried around an infection and uh, one of his patients died because he transmitted the infection. And your question, is it permissible to do such a thing apart from being noble and brave – It certainly is, yes. There is a Talmudic discussion both in the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud. How much risk may you expose yourself to to save another person? This is a long, complex subject. I'll say very briefly only this. There's a famous and fascinating argument between the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds. The Jerusalem Talmud makes it plain that it's an obligation to place yourself at high risk to save someone else. In other words, someone else is certainly going to die unless you try to save them. You will put yourself at great risk and will certainly save them. Those are the conditions. They'll certainly die without you, you'll certainly save them, but you have a high chance of dying as well, or shall we say a very significant chance. It's apparent from the Jerusalem Talmud, without going into the detailed sources now, that one is in fact obliged to do so. Save a comrade who's been taken by terrorists or from you know, some natural danger or disaster. Fortunately for most of us chickens, the Babylonian Talmud says one is obliged to expose oneself to minimum danger and one has the option, discretionary, to expose oneself to moderate danger. High danger being defined as, let's say, 50% or more, 50% or more, that's certainly not. So the definitive ruling, we have a general principle when there's a discrepancy between Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds, we rule according to the Babylonian. So the broadly accepted principle today is that one may not expose oneself to high risk. Again, there's an interesting debate what is called high risk here. One may not expose oneself to high risk to save someone else. There are exceptions. Under which circumstances a person may not only engage high risk, you may sacrifice your life, for example, to save a community. So to save a particular individual or a community, and there have been classic examples of that, the Babylonian Talmud talks about two brothers, Papus and Lulianus, two Jews living in the town of Lud. The Romans had a daughter of one of the Roman aristocrats who was being killed. The governor of the area accused the Jews of having killed her and threatened the whole Jewish community of Lud to kill them all unless they yielded their criminals. Of course, it wasn't the Jews' fault at all. But two heroic brothers, Papadopoulos, stepped forward and falsely admitted to the Romans that they had committed the murder. And, of course, he killed them and they saved the city. The Talmud says no one can compare to their place in the higher world for what they did. Many commentaries say the Romans knew they were lying. But of course, he'd made his offer, so you know, he had accepted. So yes, you can give your life to save a community, but all else being equal, one should not expose oneself to high risk, generally speaking, to save someone else.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to move on from the vaccines a bit, which we spoke about last week, the evidence and the conspiracies. This week, I'd like to talk about a slightly more sensitive issue, which is how do we decide who gets treated? Now, here in the UK, we've had three lockdowns hopefully no more, all due to the hospitals and the doctors being overloaded with patients, which in turn created the biggest crisis since World War Two. So how on earth do we decide who gets treated when we simply don't have the resources to treat everyone?
1: Right. This is a well-known question. We refer to it in the general general terms as triage. Let me just say this for our podcast listeners. I do have a lengthy series on this, which they are welcome to access at my website, ikivatats.com. There's a section there on medical law. And in fact, I wrote a book about this. That's called Dangerous Disease and Dangerous Therapy in Jewish Medical Ethics. Why not do a little shameless self-promotion? And in that book- Don't give everything away. In that book, there is all the formal references and sources in great detail. But in general, I'd like to make two points. The first point is what COVID has shown us and brought out very clearly, is that triage in Judaism is not only an individual question. I stop at a roadside accident, two people are bleeding, I can only save one. And i certainly been in circumstances like that myself as a doctor many times, both in hospital practice and I was an army doctor in South Africa for a couple of years, not by choice, but I was conscripted. In fact, the first day the army sent me into the danger zone where there was a terrorist war going on, two of my friends were shot. Two of my friends were shot. One died and one survived, but you know, I was personally in circumstances having to have with one pair of hands, you know, a number of people whose lives are threatened and you can't save them all. So that is a well-known issue, and we'll talk a bit about that. But what I'd like to point out first is that triage is also a societal issue, and COVID has shown us on that very clearly. You don't have to be a doctor for that. If you're a hospital administrator and you have to spend money on a new well-baby clinic, they measure the kids and give them vitamins and so on, may you do that if you don't have enough intensive care, you know, surgical beds? That's triage too. At a broader level, May a country spend money on its parks and museums and tourist attractions if it doesn't have enough military or emergency medical facilities? That's triage too. So triage isn't only, you know, Mr. A and Mr. B or Miss A or, you know, who's dying. It is a broad societal problem. No society on earth today has enough money to provide every facility for every patient, even Americans. There are not always enough dialysis and transplantation facilities for everyone. And therefore, this is a very broad problem. Let me tell you a fascinating incident. There was a couple living in a certain European city three years ago, and I actually heard this from Ravel Yashiv's son-in-law Rav Zilberstein. This couple were unable to have children. And after many, many years of childlessness, they ended up at a very slick fertility unit at a Tel Aviv hospital. And they had a child. But boy, happened to be an exceptionally wealthy couple, and the father in his joy made a massive donation to the hospital, but with a condition. The condition is this money is only to be used to help other people have children like we did. And the hospital director, you know, is an Israeli and uh, probably you know Israelis have their own opinions sometimes. And this hospital director said to the man, that's immoral of you. It is immoral of you to spend money helping people have children when I've got dying people who need to be saved. Judaism, I've got people who need urgent therapy that we cannot afford. That certainly comes before helping people have children. The man said, I'm not giving my money. You know, instead of just taking the money, you know, it reminds me of the Ponovicherov was a very very shrewd rabbinic personality of the last generation he had a friend who was exceptionally wealthy exceptionally generous but jewishly a little challenged and this m- friend once promised the rabbi enough money to build an entire religious school yeshiva on condition that the students would not have to wear these kipot, y- yarmukas, head coverings the rabbi promised immediately took the money and he built a girl's school <laughs> which is of course <laughs> the way to handle those situation but in this case they couldn't agree so they went to see Yashiv. great Last word, the broadest shoulders in the halachic world at the time. And he ruled that the man is fully entitled to give his money to the fertility service. So the hospital director said, Rabbi Yashiv, don't you know Jewish law? We're <laughs> 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 saving lives. Listen to what the rabbi said. Astounding. Rabbi Yashiv said, a country needs a normal spread of facilities. When you start funding only emergencies, people get an embattled mentality. That affects morale. That's also life and death. Very interesting. Now, I don't know if he would say that if it's a dying person in front of him, but societal needs are very different, or at least significantly different, than individual needs. May I give you one more example? The Talmud in the Dorim says, imagine a water source, let's say a river, flowing from one city to another. There's only enough water in the river that if the people in the upstream city drink, they'll leave enough water for the downstream people to drink as well. But if they drink and wash, There'll be no water left and the people downstream will die of thirst. Different opinions. exactly how serious it will be without going into the nuances. The obvious moral challenge is, if you live in the upstream city, are you constrained to drink only, to leave enough water for your compatriots downstream as well to save their lives, or may you drink and wash, even though you'll leave no money for the people downstream? Unbelievably, there's an opinion in the Talmud that says that the upstream people drink and wash. Amazingly. What's the reason? One of the reasons given there is because if they don't wash, there may be an outbreak of hygiene-related epidemic among them. Now, that may not kill them tomorrow, but it may kill them the next day. They can bring that into the calculation. So you see, when it's a society, there are different issues. There's no question two people in the desert. As you well know, Rabbi Menah, the Talmud in Baba says, two people in the desert, one of them has a bottle of water. There's only enough water in the bottle that if he drinks it, he'll get back to civilization. Of course, why you'd want to do that these days beats me. But, you know, if, you do. <laughs> but if you share the water with your friend, neither one will make it home. Do you share the water and both die tomorrow? Or do you deprive him of the water, you drink it, and survive in the long term? As you know, the conclusion that we rule by is that the one who has the water drinks it. Now imagine this person in the desert having enough water for two. He's got enough water in his bottle for two. And he says to his friend, you know, I do have enough water to save you as well, but I feel like washing my shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Would we consider such a thing? Of course not. But a city may. So you see, when it comes to communities, I think we think differently than when it comes to an immediate pressing life and death need. And I think that's an introduction to your questions about triage.
0: And that also touches on the whole debate that was in the United Kingdom with the lockdowns. On the one hand, it's saving lives. On the other hand, it's destroying society and mental health as we know it. It's pretty much the same. That's
1: exactly the point
0: I'm making. Yes. Right. So is it fair, would you say, from a terror perspective for the United Kingdom, which is a quite a wealthy country to purchase a relative excessive amount of vaccines when the poorer countries such as africa and india as we see they could barely get any is such a thing fair
1: yes i think the red alert word in your sentence there was excessive if the country is buying enough vaccines or medical modalities to for its own people i think that's perfectly correct i think that's what the leaders of a country are supposed to be doing why should other people be prioritized over you excessive would be immoral in other words to stockpile or you know for contingencies and with other people need them now i think would be a societal cultural aberration but to prioritize your own citizens is indeed clear let me say this that when we look at the triage criteria who comes first family member a brother a parent a grandparent an ex-wife a mother-in-law you know who who comes Mm. first so we have a clear set of priorities and one of them indeed is a relative or not only a relative, but somebody who you have a relationship with. Let me give you a brief, a brief overview of that. What are the criteria? Which hierarchy of criteria do we use to establish who comes first in Jewish law in the acute situation? Two people in front of me. How do I prioritize which of these people comes first? There is a section in the Talmud in a tractate known as Horius on page 13. There the Talmud talks about who has more mitzvahs. Now that would mean that a man should come before a woman. A coin before a levy, uh, for example. Okay, we don't rule according to that. And very interesting. That is a suggestion. We're not talking about intrinsic worth or value. No, that's not the case. But more mitzvahs might be a hierarchical criteria. In fact, we don't apply that. So, which are the criteria we do apply? Probably the most basic of all, amazingly, is a physical proximity. If I walk into a room and there are two people, all else equal, all else equal, one is close to me and one is more distant. There's a basic Jewish principle that I'm obliged to treat the person who's physically closer to me. And the reason is we have a principle called avirin ala You may not bypass a mitzvah. Which means as I approach the closer person, I'm beholden in a life-saving commandment. I can't walk past him. That would be a very basic criterion. In English societal terms, we might say first come, first served. That may be a vague application of the same notion. The second would be who's related to me. Now we have a verse in the Torah, Mipsarcha. Do not ignore your flesh. And from this the Talmud learns that a relative of yours gets priority, not because they're worth more than anyone else, but they're more closely related to you and you have an obligation to them. So a relation, and the context in which the Talmud discusses this, is charity. Your charity money goes to your relative before a stranger, to a parent before anyone else. Parents have a special status. After that, grandparents. Interesting hierarchy of relatives. A neighbor comes before someone else. A resident of your city comes before someone else in another city. They're not worth more, but you have a relationship. Concentric layers of hierarchical responsibility. And so you're obliged to give charity and, of course, save lives of people in your city or community or suburb before anyone else except for Jerusalem. You can equally prioritize a Jewish cause in Jerusalem with your own city because notionally we all live there. Many modern rabbis say to pass to the whole of Israel that would in fact
0: be true. So in the first case you brought about the distance, if this further person was your father, should you go past the first person?
1: You are obviously a black belt in halachic and Talmudic (laughs) thinking. That is the question I was going to put. I always put that question to my audience to challenge them. But someone with a Talmudic background will of course ask that question. Indeed, that's a perfect question to ask. When I walk into a room and one is closer and one is related to me, which priority takes priority? Beautiful question. So I step into the room, somebody closer to me dying, somebody equally threatened, more distant, but the more distant is my brother. Now both of them have Torah derivations, not bypassing a mitzvah and not prioritizing a brother. The answer to that question is that you bypass the closer person to get to your brother. Now, why, I'm not going to disclose, and I'd like our listeners to have a few sleepless nights trying to think about that. It's a logical challenge, and I'd like them to think about why. Both have equally valid equivalent sources. You may not bypass a commandment, which means treat the first person. On the other hand, you may not overlook or bypass a brother or relative. So which priority takes priority? The answer is your brother. And for homework, if I may suggest to our listeners, maybe next week Mm -hmm. without promising.
0: We can't give them a week without sleep.
1: (laughs) In fact, there is an exception to that rule. You may not bypass the closer person if they are aware they're being bypassed. Because as soon as a person realizes they're being abandoned, that causes a sense of hopelessness, abandonment, I'm gonna die, they can't save me. That is a tangible additive lethal factor and that you can't do.
0: Because that's tantamount to murdering them.
1: In a sense, it's adding to their lethal burden Mm. and any experienced doctor knows that the patient's emotional status is relevant, sometimes highly relevant, and therefore you may not do that. But if they're unaware, indeed you would treat. Now, there are other criteria as well. For example, the obvious one, one is more danger than the other. So then we treat the person who's more threatened. A young before an old, interesting, interesting. There are both both opinions in rabbinic literature. We generally tend to save young before old, and this is generally societally agreed as well. And for more... Is, of the, that,
0: is that due to their lifetimes being ahead of them? That's...
1: You know... In halachic literature, the reason is not really specified. In general secular medical ethics, there are two countervailing opinions. One is you save the younger because they have more life ahead of them to live. Mm. The other opinion is you save the old because they've paid their dues. They've served society. Therefore, they need to be saved as a reward. These are two interesting countervailing. The general consensus is that we save the young before the old. And halachically we probably agree with that.
0: In the Titanic disaster, it was very well known that the women and children were saved first. Is there anything about saving women and children? Because they're more vulnerable, I'm assuming. Is there any such basis in halakha for that? Well,
1: well, I think that's a moot point, who's more vulnerable and who's more, you know, stronger. And I would say women are stronger in some respects, right? Women, for example, can go through the kind of pain that, you know, Rabbi Manah, if you had to go through labor and give birth to a child, you know, I can promise you, you'd need therapy the rest of your life. I mean, (laughs) you know, you, you don't want to go through that, right? No, I think that if they were more vulnerable, that in fact may be true, but there's no Jewish priority of gender as such. For example, honoring your parents, there's no priority. There are some differential variables between your parents, which might make a difference, depending what your parents want. If your parents are divorced or separated, there's no Jewish priority at all. No, so I don't think that would uh, that would be correct. It is a Western romantic notion that women and children first, and that may be very noble, if in fact they need more help at that point in time, but that's not of itself a Jewish value.
0: Now, we know you're not just a rabbi, but you're a doctor too. And obviously all the best rabbis are doctors. Can you share with us some of your own experiences? You mentioned a couple before, some of your own experiences where you've had to make these very difficult decisions.
1: Yes, well, I mean, again, in medical training, you know, I'm sure this is really not uncommon for any doctor going through that process. You know, I remember two o'clock in the morning as an intern, being awakened for the precious few minutes of sleep that I had. A bus is overturned, 20 people seriously injured. They'll be here in a few minutes, get down to the casualty, you know, emergency room. And I knew that by the time I get there, the help would not have arrived yet. By the time the surgeons and everybody else would get there, I'd have to make choices, you know. And so it was. Usually, in most of those situations, you more or less can delegate. And I was in an army situation where I had five, on one occasion, five soldiers very, very badly injured and burnt actually was an accident there they were in a covered Bedford truck which is a like a 10 ton army vehicle covered by a canvas a massive canvas awning over the back of the truck and one of the soldiers had extended his 20 foot aerial from his portable radio set and unknowingly they'd ridden under the high power lines you know, high voltage lines around an installation in South Africa, they were, and of course the radio exploded and the whole truck burst into flames, and some were burnt and some were injured, jumping out, broke their legs, jumping out the back of the truck, and I was the doctor on duty in the local military camp when they arrived, but I managed more or less to kind of stabilize them, and, and uh, you know, so I've been in circumstances like that. By the way, it's very interesting, in the secular world, we don't always agree with the criteria that are laid down. You know, tragically, Many triage situations like that, what's called a mass casualty incident, MCI, they're well known protocols how to handle those, and tragically, many of them be developed in Israel, unfortunately. Now, one of the criteria is you don't treat anyone till you've triaged everyone. So, 20 people injured, you may not treat anyone till you've assessed everyone. The logic being you want to save as many as possible. It doesn't always agree with Jewish law. For example, in Tel Aviv, There was an attack, a number of people, 15, 20 people were injured. The first person on scene was a young lady doctor. The first person she arrived at was a seven-year-old boy, bleeding badly from the neck. She put her finger on the bleeding and stopped it, and then her dilemma was, what do I do now? If I stay here, I save the child's life, but there are 15 other people who may need me. But if I take my finger off and assess them, the boy will die. Now, general triage protocols are, assess everyone, but that's not the Jewish. The Jewish criterion is, there's a certainly dying now, and they possibly may die later. We always prioritise the certainty over the doubt. So there are some rare circumstances we would not necessarily agree with the secular criteria, but in most cases we would.
0: And that brings our discussion to an end. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Tetz. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to tune in next week for the final of three episodes on COVID. Any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future topics can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. See you next week.